Recovery Elevator, episode 27. I love skiing more than any other sport, and I didn't want to ski because I just wanted to drink. Welcome to the Recovery Elevator podcast. My name is Paul. Thank you so much for joining us. Sober Nation is the largest online recovery community and treatment resource center. They provide treatment resources to those struggling with addiction as well to family members who are caught in the crossfire. On top of that, Sober Nation is a huge community of good people who share their experience with each other. They have informative content, recent recovery and addiction news, as well as an entire clothing line, which helps expand the culture of recovery. They can be found at www.SoberNation.com. Once again, that's SoberNation.com. According to my Recovery Elevator sobriety app on my phone, I have been sober for 11 months, two weeks, and two days. Yes, that is 12 days away from a very big day for Mr. Paul Churchill, myself. That would be one year of sobriety. I'm not even going to talk about it right now because it's not in the bag. This whole thing is one day at a time. It's been one day at a time since the start, September 7th, 2014, but I'm getting excited. I'm real excited. And I am going to make it. My fingers are crossed. You can't see that, but my fingers were crossed. I just wrapped up a four-part series called The Other Side. It was where I interviewed an alcoholic as well as a normal drinker whose lives have been ravaged, partially ruined, and extremely negatively affected by alcoholics. And a big virtual hug goes out to all of you non-alcoholics, you normal drinkers, who've been affected by us alcoholics because we are so selfish that I never even really considered you guys when I was doing my bottle to the face, all about me behavior. But now in episode 27, we are going to get back into the normal format. I've got Lisa. She's 39 years old. She's an attorney and she's got 19 months of sobriety. I've seen Law and Order. I've read the Pelican Brief. I can only imagine being an attorney is quite stressful. So Lisa tells us how she has successfully managed to make it to 19 months sober. Congratulations, Lisa. Before we get to the interview, I'm going to talk to you guys about an article I read that was posted in the Recovery Elevator Private Accountability Group. It was a fictitious article. It could have been something that was written in The Onion, written by German Lopez from The Vox. There will be a link to this article on the recoveryelevator.com website. Go to podcast and go to episode 27. But it was an article that described a fictitious world where the media covered alcohol like it really should be covering alcohol. What I mean by that is alcohol is related to about 88,000 deaths each year in the United States. In earlier podcasts, I say it's linked to about 3 million deaths worldwide. Now, crack, cocaine, meth, heroin, all those other drugs that we hear about, they don't even tickle those numbers. They don't even scratch those numbers, believe it or not. So put on your green hat, meet us in the quad, and join me on this fictitious recovery elevator online newscasting station. Here we go. Paul Churchill here with the Recovery Elevator Online News Station. I'm here on the Las Vegas Strip, covering an ongoing drug epidemic that has swept through the U.S., killing hundreds and sickening thousands more on a daily basis. The widespread use of this substance called alcohol, also known as booze, and other street terms used to describe this drug are called juice, the hard stuff, the sauce, hooch, grandpa's cough syrup, moonshine, draft, suds, liquid courage, and 12-ounce curls. The widespread consumption of this drug has been linked to erratic and even dangerous behavior, ranging from college students running naked down public streets to brutal attacks and even robberies. Federal officials suggest this drug has already been linked to 88,000 deaths each year across the country. 
including traffic accidents caused by drug-induced impairment, liver damage caused by excessive consumption, and violent behavior. Experts warn that it can also lead to nausea, vomiting, severe headaches, poor draft picks at your fantasy football draft in Las Vegas, cognitive defects among children and teens, and even fetal defects in pregnant women. Excessive consumption of alcohol, or on the street the kids call sauce, is a leading cause of preventable death in the U.S. Centers for Disease and Control and Prevention Principal Deputy Director Elena Arias said in a statement, We need to implement effective programs and policies to prevent binge drinking and the many health and social harms that are related to it, including deaths from alcohol poisoning. Now let's go to the ground in America's alcohol epidemic capital. That would be New Orleans, the French Quarter. The horror of this drug was particularly prominent in the city's French Quarter, where hundreds of young adults could be seen roiling from the effects of the drug. Some collapsed on the ground, dazed from alcohol's effects. Others could be seen vomiting in public, a common result of drinking. Many could be seen limping and clumsily walking down the street, showcasing the type of impairment that the public health officials warn can lead to accidents, especially when someone is behind the wheel of a car. What's worse, public use of this drug has become widely accepted in some circles. In New Orleans, several men and women in their 20s and 30s, and some in their 40s, shouted, We're going to get wasted tonight! Which translates to, Hey, let's drink a ton of alcohol and do things that we are going to regret for the rest of our lives. Some have even turned pastime ping pong into a game that involves drinking. An interesting suggestion is that alcohol affects women differently in the French Quarter. When women have been drinking the sauce, as the kids call it, they begin a relentless quest for beads. Beads in the necklace format. They exhibit a behavior where they cannot satiate the need for enough beads. Women have even been videotaped taking off their shirts in return for beads. I found this hypothesis ludicrous, so I decided to test it. Last night around midnight, I offered the mother load of beads to a group of women. Sure enough, tops came off and I saw boobs. The next morning, I saw a group of sober girls. Well, they look sober and pretty hungover. And when I said, here's some beads, can I see your boobs? I got slapped right in the face. It's definitely the drug alcohol making these women show their boobs for beads. In other places, there have been similar reports of individuals engaging in bizarre, inexplicable behavior while under the effects of alcohol. Some reports found intoxicated college students exposing themselves to others or running the streets naked while shouting hysterical things like, we're going streaking to the quad. Others report urinating in public streets after just a few alcoholic beverages. And at least one man who consumed alcohol tried to ride a crocodile and was seriously injured when the animal fought back. Now I'm going to take off my recovery elevator fictitious green reporting hat for just a second, put it aside, and come forth with an admission. When I first read that line, one man who consumed alcohol tried to ride a crocodile and was seriously injured, I was like, oh my gosh, that is pathetic and awesome at the same time. And it wasn't until about 24 hours later that I recalled a photo of myself drunk in the Amazon rainforest trying to pet a crocodile, or it could have been an alligator or a caiman, I don't know. But this photo can be found at recoveryelevator.com under the blog post, episode 27. Yeah, I was judging that person. So about 24 hours later, I realized that if that crocodile had to come about three inches closer, I probably would have tried to ride it too. Okay, green reporting hat back on. The consumption of this potent drug actually starts to rewire brain chemistry. One law enforcement official said they have no control over their thoughts. They can't control their actions. It's just a dangerous, dangerous drug. Green hat off. Sounds like zombie behavior. Green hat on. Across the U.S., public health officials have linked alcohol to much graver effects, including domestic abuse, sexual assault on college campuses, 
40% of violent crimes in the U.S. and more than 4.6 million emergency room visits each year are attributed to the consumption of alcohol. According to federal data, alcohol is already the second deadliest drug in the country, topped only by one other legal substance called tobacco. Wait, wait, wait. I didn't read that wrong. That's legal. Legal substance called tobacco, which causes an astonishing 480,000 deaths each year. And that's a safe estimate. Some estimates say that tobacco kills up to 540,000 people each year. Green hat off. If you're drinking booze, about nine out of 10 people, statistically wise, can normally drink alcohol. And if consumed responsibly, there are actually some cardiovascular and other health benefits. Here's a fun fact. Zero out of 10 people can healthily smoke cigarettes. If you're smoking cigarettes, stop. Now, I understand the addiction part of that very well. It's not easy, but that's one of those things you will never be a normal cigarette smoker because those people don't exist. Green reporting hat back on. No other drug comes close to the staggering fatalities of these two. Heroin, which has consumed widespread media attention in the past few years, was linked to fewer than 9,000 deaths in 2013. And marijuana, another drug that federal lawmakers have warned is dangerous, repeatedly caused zero overdose in the last couple years. Oh, actually, that's the last couple thousand years. Unsurprisingly, and it's about freaking time, public health experts demand action. Despite the heightened public health crisis, federal and state officials seem reluctant to do anything about the drug, which remains legal for adults 21 and older to possess and even sell in most of the U.S. Policymakers say that banning alcohol is out of the question citing its importance to the economy and American culture. Drug policy experts have suggested levying higher taxes on the drug or bringing its sales under state control, pointing to numerous studies that have shown these measures would reduce use. But lawmakers at the state and federal level seem reluctant to take up even these milder measures, likely under the influence and lobbying of drug producers and dealers, I said dealers, profiting from hundreds of billions in sales of alcohol each year. Perhaps as a result, alcohol producers have felt free to advertise their product during major televised events such as the Super Bowl, which is viewed by millions and millions of children each year. The marketing employees tend to portray alcohol as cool and fun, seldom mentioning the risks and thousands of deaths linked to the drug each year. Green Hat Off, they do a damn good job of portraying alcohol as cool and fun. Green Hat Back On. As policymakers stand idly by, alcohol consumption has reached epidemic proportions. A recent Gallup survey found nearly two-thirds of Americans admitted to using this drug, even as another survey by Gallup found more than one in three Americans blame alcohol or this drug for family problems. For many public health officials, the startling numbers pose the question, what will it take to wake up the public and officials to this widening and ever-deepening drug epidemic? This is Paul Churchill reporting for the Recovery Elevator online news channel. After doing this report and educating myself on the side effects, you can be darn well certain I'm going to do my best not to touch that shit ever again. Green hat off. Now, I want to be clear. Recovery Elevator is in by no means vindictive or is this some podcast as a vendetta against alcohol companies. If you're a normal drinker, 9 out of 10 of you or whatnot, congratulations. That's awesome. I don't want you to join my club. The club sucks. The club is kind of like the polar bear club in Norway, where you jump in the frigid cold water and you're like, why the hell did I just jump through this hole cut in the ice? The water is frigid. But acceptance is the answer. I am an alcoholic and I am in this club. I can be like, yeah, this club sucks. I know I just said that, but I'm kidding. It's a fantastic club. 
once you're on the other side of it, where I am right now, where such a better life is at my reach and I've already got it, but I've got to maintain it and do work every day to keep it. But darn, how crazy of an exercise is that to just imagine? What if the media did do justice to the wreckage that alcohol causes this country and the world? And if I were a betting man, I don't think alcohol is going to go anywhere in the next 5, 10, 50, 5,000 years. Well, let's get to the interview segment of the podcast. Let's hear from Lisa. Lisa, how are you? I'm good. How are you, Paul? I'm doing very well, thank you. And thanks for joining us on this beautiful Monday, Montana morning. Now, Recovery Elevator, Lisa is 39 years old. She's got her hands full with three kids. And there is the stigma that alcoholics, they can't hold down a job, they're not professional. Well, I've got an attorney on the phone with you guys today. Lisa has also been sober for 19 months. December 12th, 2013 is her sobriety date. So, Lisa, talk to me about the podcast title, Recovery Elevator. Lead me up to that point on December 12th, 2013, when you decided to get off your elevator. Sure. Thank you for inviting me to join you, Paul, and delighted to be a part of of what you're doing. About two years ago, I was in what I hope were the very last months of my drinking. I moved my family from Chicago to Montana. It was I, I had been living in Chicago for 10 years and working in a big law firm there and becoming increasingly desperately unhappy and drinking more and more and using more and more drugs to just get through the days. And I had this idea that if I could get away from my high pressure job and get out of the city and get back to nature and get back to a kind of more wholesome way of living, maybe I could get out from under what alcohol was starting to do to me. And so I had lived in Montana for a couple of years after college. I was nostalgic about those years and and I had always loved this area and my husband had too. So we decided to quit our jobs and, and sell our condo and come out to Montana. And I got here and I got a job with Stainer Hours and they spent all of that extra free time drinking more. And Thanksgiving of that year, I had a bunch of members of my family come to visit. They wanted to see our new town and our new house and, and come and celebrate the big change that we had made for our family. And so everyone came to visit and we rented a condo up in Big Sky and planned to ski the whole weekend. And I love skiing. I love skiing more than any other sport. And I didn't want to ski because I just wanted to drink. And I didn't really want to be around my family because if I was as drunk as I like to be at that point, I was too drunk to pull it off. You know, I was too drunk to pretend that I was sober. And during the hours that I was not as drunk as I wanted to be, I was so uncomfortable being around them. And I ended up pretending that I was sick so that I could lay in my room for hours just drinking and and playing games on my phone and drinking warm vodka out of a bottle in my suitcase. And that weekend, I talked to my younger sister, and she had just started going to AA meetings, and she was trying to quit drinking. And when she shared that with me, I said, well, why why now? And she said it was because she had slept through the night when she was supposed to be the tooth fairy. And seeing the, the look on her five-year-old's face when her daughter woke up and there was no tooth fairy visit, that was enough for my sister to say, all right, something's got to change. And that was 
I, I still remember it was so chilling for me to hear her say that because I had three kids by then and I had never been the tooth fairy. I mean, I was just not qualified to be the tooth fairy and that was a known thing in my family. My husband knew he was the tooth fairy and it was something we never even talked about and it didn't even occur to me to feel sad that I wasn't capable of, you know, I couldn't be counted on to stay up late and remember to do that because I was passing out every night. So I guess when I heard her say that, I thought, what am I waiting for? What what am I, I mean, if that, if that could be a reason to get off the elevator, and it should be, I mean, it should have been for me is what I realized. It just seemed like that was the end of the line. And I'm very grateful that within a couple of weeks, I, I was in AA meetings and I connected immediately with some people who helped me believe that I could, that I didn't have to drink and that I could stop and then just took it one day at a time after that. Lisa, I got to say congratulations because a lot of people ride that elevator down to the bitter end. That does sound brutal. It sounds like your hobbies were crushed. You love to ski. You love to hang out with your family. But then you decided to drink instead. And talk to me about that. Talk to me about your drinking habits and what they were like leading up to December 12th, 2013. And did you ever try to maybe control it or, or put a lid on it, pun intended? I did. You know, I come from a family of a lot of alcoholics and and a lot of recovered alcoholics too. So really in my family, there are people who don't drink anymore and people who shouldn't drink anymore. There really are not a lot of normal drinkers in my family, but one of them, or at least someone who seemed to me to be a normal drinker is an, an uncle of mine. And I went to him maybe 10 years ago and I said, how is it that you can still how is it that you can be a normal drinker? <laughs> I mean, it just didn't grow up with any role models of that. And and I really, really wanted to be able to drink for the rest of my life. So, you know, I asked him to, how do you do it? And he told me that he doesn't drink hard liquor on weeknights and he takes February off every single year. So those were two things that I tried to follow. And for a while, I could. For a while in my 20s and early 30s, I could. And that helped me get through law school and it helped me get through the early years of being an attorney and you know and it and it made me think that I I was going to escape the family curse I was going to be able to do that forever and then that started to slip and the first year that I tried to take February off and I made it maybe a week and drank I remember thinking I don't have to prove anything to anyone and that was that this thing that I had done for a decade almost in the name of trying to control this trying to make sure I didn't go down the road that so many of my family had when it became too hard for me to do it it was so easy to discard it so I'd make these rules I would follow them for a while and think see I got this I'm in control here and then when the day came that I couldn't follow it anymore, it was very easy to decide that those rules were stupid and they didn't matter and that the fact that I couldn't follow them didn't signify anything until finally I was drinking at least a fifth of vodka just to get through the day. And I had bottles in the car and bottles at work and there were no longer any rules. No, no wait till five o'clock, no, no drinking on the job. I mean, things that earlier in my drinking career, they weren't even rules because of course I wouldn't drink on the job. Right. And then it became, well, that's pretty messed up. I, I drank on the job. And then it just became normal. And so there was just that, that pattern that a lot of us know where you lose control of how often, you lose control of how much. And then every day just becomes a, a series of rationalizations about what you're doing. And I remember telling myself that lots of people 
drank the way that I did, which actually, well, it's true, <laughs> but the lots of people who drink the way I did prob- probably would benefit from not drinking anymore. I'm sure there are people out there who drink the way I did who maybe aren't alcoholics, but, but for me, once I couldn't control the frequency or the quantity, it was just a matter of time before it was going to have to be over. Lisa, I had an idea when you were talking earlier. You are going to be the second half of a of a four-part series called The Other Side. There are two interviewees being interviewed on this podcast episode. The first one is a normal drinker. The second one is an alcoholic yourself. Now, when you said that your sister's daughter was just mortified that the tooth fairy didn't come, I had an idea. We got to get your sister's daughter on the podcast. And we, we won't tell her that the tooth fairy doesn't exist, but just ask her what it was like when that tooth fairy didn't come and reward her with a couple nickels or quarters, or I don't know what the conversion rate is for 2015. In 1984, it was like a penny and a nickel. But <laughs> I mean, that's part of it too. Your sister's daughter or your niece is dealing with alcoholism in an indirect way. I mean, mm-hmm. and that's amazing though, how that made your sister sober up. Yep. She just got a year in June. That's incredible. And Guilty as charged myself, the geographical cure. I've done it twice, actually many more times than twice. But sounds like you relocated your entire family from the Chicago area all the way to Bozeman, Montana. What was it like when you weren't working such long hours and you had more free time and you were still drinking? Was there any disappointment or was it like, okay, maybe it wasn't Chicago or the long hours that was going on there? Yeah, I was pretty crushed. One of the most frightening moments for me was two years ago, actually, right around now, I had to take the Montana bar exam because I was licensed in Illinois, but that still had to retake the exam here in Montana. And it had been seven years since I took the Illinois bar. So I had a lot of studying to do, but I was also working full time and, and trying to move the family. And I was drinking and I was passing out every night, and I was taking medicine to try to interfere with the feelings of pleasure that alcohol creates. That was an idea that for the first time that summer, I was honest with the doctor about my drinking, and her suggestion was to try this medication that would interfere with the receptors of the alcohol. So I took it, and then I just drank more because there was a certain feeling that I had to get to at the end of every day. And if it took two bottles instead of one, and it took me until three in the morning instead of midnight, I still had to do that. So in the midst of all of that, I had to take the Montana bar exam. And I was not at all sure I was going to pass. But I was sure that I wasn't going to drink. It's a two-day exam. So the two nights before, of course, I'm not going to drink, right? I found myself at a hotel in Missoula studying, last-minute studying, hotel room covered in, in notebooks and books and trying to memorize all of this stuff. And, of course, I drank. I went to the hotel bar and drank until they closed. And then I got a bunch of bottles from the bar and brought them back to my room and emptied them all. And took the first day hungover and then did the same thing the second night and took the second day so hungover that I I dozed off during the essays. I did pass. I still don't know how. That was a real... That was a real act of grace that I passed. But I thought when that exam was over, I hadn't even completed moving from Chicago to Montana. And when that was over, I thought, okay, I just failed the bar exam and I'm going to have to tell my new boss in Bozeman that I failed the bar exam after seven years of practicing. 
And and that was a moment where even as I was driving my car from Chicago to Montana, it was with all of those fears and all of that feeling of failure. And I thought, this is not going to be different. So before I even finished the move, I kind of knew it was not going to be different. And that was one of the hardest, most bitter pills I had to swallow because I'd been planning that move for two years and had given up so much to accomplish it. And, and it was with some feeling of hope that everything would just be better if I could get away from the big city and the bad job. And, the, and then I realized nothing was going to be better. And at that point, I didn't have any hope yet that I could quit. That didn't come along until my sister started talking to me. So I thought things were just going to continue to get worse and worse and worse because that was how it had been going. And it it was clear to me the move wasn't going to interrupt that trend. Lisa, I I guess the silver lining is you passed the bar exam, but that sounds like an absolute miserable situation, a borderline, a living hell. Am I right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've never been that scared. I really have never been as scared as I was sitting at that hotel bar. That was when I knew I couldn't even stay sober for one night, even though I had such a good reason I couldn't stay sober. And I couldn't even, I couldn't not get blackout drunk. It wasn't only that I was at the bar drinking. If I could have gone to the bar and closed the bar and gone to bed at 10 o'clock, that that would have been different. But it was once I had the first drink, I just had to drink until I passed out. And realizing that I had to do it, that I had no choice, was one of the most frightening moments of my life. Lisa, you said you had a good reason to stay sober. And there's been a lot of people out there who've had fantastic reasons to stay sober. One of them could be your doctor telling you, if you drink again, you will die. Or law enforcement saying, if you get another DUI, you're going to go to jail for a long time. Those are all great reasons. Your reason was fantastic. Say if you didn't pass that bar, that would have been real embarrassing to tell your boss. There could have been financial repercussions for years to come. You have three kids to financially provide for. That was a pretty damn good reason to stay sober. And it was your alcoholism that was right in your ear on that bed with you and that stack of books chatting your ear off. Talk to me about your addiction, alcoholism, how it probably told you that night. You're like, you know what, Lisa, we can just have a couple. Absolutely. And telling me that if I didn't, I wouldn't sleep. You know, that was the thing. I thought if I don't have at least a few drinks, I won't sleep. And it's not good to take the bar exam after a night of total insomnia. So I'll just go have a few so that I can sleep. And it will only take a few glasses of wine. And, and one of the one of the most important things that I've learned about my disease is something that my sponsor had told me. It's that alcoholism is a disease that lies to me with my own voice. And that was a really important thing for me to wrap my head around because the idea that I might have thought and feelings and urges that are false, that are out to kill me, that was a completely transformative idea. The idea that I might have thoughts that were out to kill me and then the idea that I didn't have to listen to them. I didn't have to act on them that I could have those thoughts, and and I occasionally still do. They're rare now, but I do still have moments where it's a beautiful summer day and it seems like everybody and their brother is having a nice cold beer out in the sunshine, and, and my disease will lie to me with my own voice and say, it's been 19 months, I could probably have one. I mean, now that I know what I know, now that I know how much better it is to live this way, I could have one. And now I know that that's my disease and it's a lie. And it's one that I don't have to act on. 
lies to you with your own voice. I wrote that down. That's incredible. And I've been in that same, okay, I've never taken the bar, but I've, my addiction has told me, it's like, well, do you want to be exhausted and tired tomorrow? Or do you want to get some sleep? And guess what I chose the alcohol to get me asleep. That's amazing that you said that I totally forgot about those scenarios. That's incredible. Now, Lisa, let's talk about 19 months ago when you decided to quit drinking. What was it like that first week, that first month? How's it been? And take us up to where we are right now, 19 months later. So I went to my first meeting, my first AA meeting. Well, I went to AA meetings when I was a teenager with my my father. I was living with him and he was newly sober and, and he didn't have a babysitter and I couldn't be trusted. So he would bring me with him to meetings and I didn't listen much. I would mostly read a book, but I came out of those meetings. Uh, what I remembered about them by the time I needed them myself was that if you went to AA, you could never drink again, which sounded terrible. I didn't want a solution that involved never drinking again. I wanted one that would teach me how to moderate. And I tried everything. And then I finally ended up thinking, all right, I'll try never drinking again. But the other thing I remembered about AA was that it had a spiritual component. That was very frightening to me. And I was actually pretty sure that that just wouldn't work for me at all. But I had gotten to a point with my drinking where I could not continue to live the way that I was living. And I was beginning to think about ways to end my own life. I did not want to have the disease go to its obvious natural conclusion, which it seemed clear to me that even though I was never locked up, even though I never had a doctor tell me you have to quit or you're going to die, I was driving drunk every single day. My body was covered in bruises. I started every morning by throwing up. I mean, I was killing myself slowly and and I was starting to think about ways to kill myself more rapidly. And so when I walked into AA, I honestly thought, well, I might as well try this before I do something more drastic. And the fact that my sister had been going to meetings, even though she hadn't actually quit yet, that really mattered to me, that someone that that I loved and admired and respected was going and was finding something useful there. I needed her to remind me of that because the only thing that I remembered from my teenage encounters with AA was off-putting. So I went to my first meeting and I was drunk at my first meeting. And yet I remember, I remember that hour with so much clarity. I remember things that people said. I remember the first four women in the program that I met who gave me their phone numbers. And one of them was smart enough to get my number, perhaps realizing that as a newcomer, I I was unlikely to call. She got my number and then texted me throughout the, the week or two that followed to say, I'm going to this meeting. Would you like to join me? And I just kept saying yes. And even though I was still drinking, I felt some hope. I remember the first morning after my first meeting, I, I woke up. I was hungover. I was assessing the severity of the hangover. But before I even opened my eyes, I remember that something had changed. And it was that I had gone to a meeting the night before where I had seen people who had been as sick as I was and they had gotten better and they were really nice to me. And that was enough to plant a little seed of hope throughout the the week that followed, I kept going back to meetings with this woman who took me under her wing. And then I drank everything in the house that I liked at all, which was a lot (laughs) over the next six days. And, you know, it just didn't seem like it was an option to pour it out. 
which sounds insane to anyone who's not an alcoholic, but probably makes perfect sense to anyone who is. So I thought I had to drink though. Um, so I did. And then when it was gone, I decided to try to not go buy more. And the first 24 hours, I thought I would fail pretty much every hour. I, I remember someone in a meeting saying, you just have to do it one day at a time. And I said, right, how do you do that? <laughs> like, how do you how do you go a day without drinking? How do you do that? Because to me, one day at a time, that didn't sound like a solution. I mean, I I didn't know how to do one day at a time. I didn't know how to not act on the urge to have a drink. To have the urge was to have a drink. I was going to meetings and I was saying those kinds of things to people. I was being honest about what I was going through and I was asking for help. And that was all very new. But I, I was asking for help and I was finding it. And I think in the first month, I remember that... Just waking up in the morning without that hangover, waking up in the morning and not having to throw up. I just remember those days starting. Every day it was like, something's different. Yes, I'm not not hungover because for years before that, the first thing I had to do every morning was assess the severity of the hangover. Then I would start thinking, what can I cancel? What can I get out of? I just was never equal to face any of my days. And I started to feel that change right away just because physically I was not hurting myself the way that I had been. And I think people talk about being in a fog in the early months, and I definitely was. I would say that lifted in in stages. I mean, it's crazy to me to think that alcohol is still on some level affecting how effectively my brain was working up until a year after. That that was my experience. At, at a year, I started to be able to remember things. I mean, I just destroyed my memory. I would write things down. I would look at my calendar. I would think, okay, at, at nine o'clock, I have a phone call. And I might think that I might read it at 8.45 and still forget the phone call. I mean, I didn't have any ability to keep track of what was going on in my life. I think I was basically just drunk all the time or or had enough alcohol in my bloodstream at all times towards the end that I was just constantly impaired. And, And when I sobered up, that level of impairment lifted, but there was still impairment. There was still like fogginess and I just didn't feel as smart as I once had felt. And I thought I probably never would. But after a year, things started to come back to me. I can remember telephone numbers now. I can remember dates. You know, I can keep track of lots of information. I can astonish my husband with my detailed memory of Game of Thrones characters and plot lines. And, you know, it's like that's kind of a silly example. But to be able to feel smart again is such a gift because I thought that was something that I was never going to get to feel again, to feel my brain actually working the way that it used to. And so it's just such a constant source of delight to me now to have that clarity. Lisa, we have reached the rapid fire round. If you could answer these questions in 60 seconds or less, that would be great. Are you ready? Ready. Let's do this. Number one, Lisa, what was your worst memory from drinking? It's a moment that we've talked about. It was sitting in a hotel bar in Missoula, Montana, drinking my face off, even though I had the bar exam to face the next day. Lisa, what's your plan in sobriety moving forward? Well, something that I heard early on that I still remind myself of all the time is that sobriety has to come first. I have to do something every day to treat my alcoholism, and and that has to be my first priority. And that is how I try to live, and I try to make commitments to people and, and to groups 
that will ensure that even on the days that I don't feel like it, there are things that I have to show up for. There are meetings with my sponsor. There are appointments to go to meetings at the jail in our town. There are home group obligations. I have things on the calendar months out that are related to my sobriety, and I I count on that to help me stay sober, even on the days where I would rather let this take a backseat. Lisa, what's your favorite resource in recovery? This could be a book. This could be the internet, AA, whatever. It's actually something that I designed myself. I have these little note cards that I printed out early on. It has a column where it lists the things that my sponsor told me, you know, if you do these things, you'll stay sober. So it's praying, meditating, reading recovery-related literature, going to meetings, calling her, calling other alcoholics, and being of service. And then I'm a lawyer. I'm type A, you know. I got to have, like, note cards and folders and everything all organized. So I, I printed those out on note cards, and then I put Monday through Sunday in other columns across the rest of the card. And I would try to check two or three off every day. And at the beginning, when I really didn't know what I was supposed to be doing and I didn't know how to handle the urge to drink when it would come, I would look at that note card and I would think, all right, well, what of these things have I not done? And then I would try them. And then eventually that kind of evolved into a promise to myself that I would try everything on that card before I picked up a drink. And I've never needed to try more than two. Those have really helped me. Lisa, the cool thing about this is there's no one way to get sober. And if those no cards help you, it'll probably help somebody else as well. And if it's all right with you, do you think you could send me a photo or you know, somehow let sure. me see the note card just so we can put it up on the website so, you know, so listeners can see it? Is that okay? Yeah, I'd love to do that. Okay, perfect. Well, well, next question. In regards to sobriety, Lisa, what's the best advice you've ever received? We covered that earlier too. It's that alcoholism is a disease that lies to me in my own voice. That's something I hold on to and that has saved me more than once. And last question, now it's time for you to give the advice. A lot of our listeners, they're thinking about quitting drinking or they're in early recovery. What advice do you have for them? I would say that if there are listeners out there who are trying to get through those first 24 hours, think about two or three things that you promise yourself you'll do before you pick up your next drink, whether it's calling someone who knows what you're struggling with or someone who's been through it themselves. Maybe it's reading something that helped you stay sober before. Maybe it's reading, you know, maybe you write out your worst moment of drinking and you tell yourself, I'm going to read that before I do this to myself again. But just put a roadblock, put something in between you and your next drink that you have to climb over. And maybe you'll find yourself with one leg on either side and you say, you know what, I'm not going to do this. For me, it was the list on my, my note card. But whatever it is, try to try to put up those roadblocks in a moment when you're sober and when you really feel committed to staying that way. Lisa, fantastic stuff. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Paul. iTunes, where the majority of the downloads from this podcast are derived from, installed a new rule where I think you can only have 20 podcasts on the iTunes page. Recovery Elevator, this is episode 27. Therefore, there are seven in episode 000, the eighth episode, that are not on iTunes. If you want to hear all the episodes, go to recoveryelevator.com, click on podcasts, and they're all there for free. When I first started Recovery Elevator, 
I thought it was going to be really hard to find people who are willing to share their stories. But wow, has it been a breath of fresh air. There's only been two people that I've asked that have declined to do an interview. And I completely understand. It's scary. And there's a small chance that your employer could hear you and it could backfire. But the good from an interview highly outweighs the bad. So having said that, if you would like to share your story, how you have gotten sober, email me at info at recoveryelevator.com. Give me a brief description and we'd love to have you on the podcast. And to be more specific, I'm looking for people who got sober outside of AA. AA, fantastic program, don't get me wrong. But I have had emails from people asking to interview people who got sober outside of AA. If that's you, I'd love to hear from you. Info at recoveryelevator.com. Now, if you are looking to join the Polar Bear Club, where you're jumping through a circle cut in the ice and the water is frigid at first, but very slowly at a rate that's almost deadly, the temperature of that water changes. It warms up ever so slightly just before you'll get fatal hypothermia. That water will slowly warm and before you know it, the water is a comfortable 88 degrees and it feels fantastic. Recovery Elevator, thank you so much for joining us. You took the elevator down, you gotta take the stairs back up. You can do this.